Welcome to Soul Searching here on Gay SA Radio, the program where you and I take a look at all the spiritual matters that matter. I'm Tom Budge. Today we take a look at two very interesting topics. The first examines the benefits of fasting, and after that we shall take a look at how suffering can provide meaning and purpose in life. Yvonne and I recently spent a weekend in the Kruger National Park. The landscape became more and more arid the further we travelled north of the Sabi River. Gnarled dead thorn trees, bleached white by the relentless sun, lay strewn across the red and dusty plains. There wasn't a green leaf to be found as far as the eye could see. It is a stark reminder of the devastating drought presently gripping southern Africa. These awful climactic conditions are caused by El Niño, a band of warm ocean water that develops in the Pacific Ocean. If you imagine South America shaped rather like a lion's head looking out over the Atlantic towards Africa, its long mane flowing down through Peru and Chile, then El Niño would trail out behind the lion's head along the equator, reaching as far east as the international dateline. El Niño is the boy, and La Niña is the girl, each designating alternating periods of warm and cold water in this region of the Pacific. What happens there affects our weather in the southern African region, and it has done so for thousands of years. This current cycle between 2014 and 2016 is one of the most severe on record. The mood in the car became somber the further north we travelled, and a helplessness settled in my heart as we drove past the skeletal remains of many an animal that had perished in the dry heat. It seemed as though nothing could survive here. But life has a certain tenacity of its own, and some hardy specimens are surviving. It's a sobering reminder that evolution is driven by the natural law of the survival of the fittest. We came upon one lone bull elephant standing forlornly among the dead acacia trees, rocking back and forth on his hind foot as he nimbly broke away dry branches and chewed away at them for the meager nourishment they might provide. It was really hard to wrap my mind around the plight of these animals, knowing that this is a repeating weather cycle that culled the weak and spared the strong. At times like this, nature switches off the urge to reproduce and turns its attention to survival instead. All animals exhibit adaptive responses to the lack of food. Human survival during evolution was dependent on the procurement of food, which in turn was dependent on physical activity needed to find it. But the food supply was never consistent, and science believes that the ancient hunter-gatherer had cycles of feast and famine, with intermittent periods of physical activity and rest. To ensure survival during periods of famine, certain genes evolved to regulate efficient intake and utilization of fuel stores. In 1962, these genes were called thrifty genes. Our genetic makeup hasn't changed much over the past 10,000 years, but our lifestyle has become far more sedentary in present society. 
living with continuous food abundance and physical inactivity, we work against our genetic programming, which manifests as an array of serious illnesses like obesity and diabetes. In E.B. White's beloved novel, Charlotte's Web, an old sheep advises the gluttonous rat Templeton that he would live longer if he ate less. Who wants to live forever, Templeton sneered. I get untold satisfaction from the pleasures of the feast. There are many kinds of fasting. Some are performed as spiritual practices over a few days. Longer-term fasts usually restrict eating during daylight hours. Fasting is practiced in Christianity. In Islam, fasting is one of its five pillars, along with the declaration of faith, prayer, charity, and pilgrimage. Ramadan is one month long, during which no food is taken during daylight hours. Traditional Judaism has six fasting days during the year when no eating or drinking occurs from sunset to the following sunset. The eight precepts of Buddhism contain prohibitions against various activities, including eating before sunrise or afternoon and are followed by the truly devout, while other Buddhists fast only on specific occasions. The Hindu term vrata is a religious practice with certain obligations, one of which can be complete or partial fasting. During a vrata period, one must remain clean, be celibate, speak truth, practice forbearance, be vegetarian, and perform rituals. Fasting is extremely common amongst Jains, while Sikhs don't believe there is any spiritual merit in fasting and do it solely for health purposes. Religions have long maintained that fasting is good for the soul, but its bodily benefits were not widely recognized until the 1900s, when doctors began recommending it to treat various disorders such as diabetes, obesity and epilepsy. Related research on calorie restriction took off in the 1930s after Cornell University nutritionist Clive McKay discovered that rats subjected to stringent daily dieting from an early age lived longer and were less likely to develop cancer and other diseases as they aged, compared with animals that ate at will. Mark Matson head of the National Institute on Aging's Neuroscience Laboratory, thinks that intermittent fasting acts in part as a form of mild stress that continually revs up cellular defenses against molecular damage. Here he is presenting these concepts at a TED Talk. In my lab, we use a number of different animal models that are relevant to age-related neurodegenerative disorders. We have mice that accumulate amyloid in their brain as they get older and they have learning and memory problems. We have mice that have damage to dopamine producing neurons that control body movements. That's a uh, model of Parkinson's disease. And we also have models of stroke, which is again another major problem and, and cause of death. Well, it's been known for a long time that one way to extend the lifespan of laboratory animals is simply to reduce their energy intake. And in rats and mice, one can increase their lifespan by 30 or 40 percent. 
we started looking at the effects of energy restriction on the brain in the context of age-related neurodegenerative disorders and found that we could slow down the, for example, abnormal accumulation of amyloid or the degeneration of dopamine neurons in the Alzheimer's and Parkinson's model by reducing energy intake. Now, there's a number of ways you can reduce energy intake. You can simply eat less at each meal, or you can do what we call intermittent fasting, so reduce the frequency of the meals. There's evidence, not just from animals, but from humans, that fasting is good for the body. It will reduce inflammation. It will reduce oxidative stress in organ systems throughout the body. And one thing that happens when you fast that does not happen when you eat three meals a day is that your energy metabolism shifts so that you start burning fats. Still, from an evolutionary perspective, three meals a day is a strange modern invention. Volatility in our ancient ancestors' food supply most likely brought on frequent fasting, not to mention malnutrition and starvation. Yet Matson believes that such evolutionary pressures selected for genes that strengthened brain areas involved in learning and memory, which increased the odds of finding food and surviving. If he is right, intermittent fasting may be both a smart and smartening way to live. We have been looking at the benefits of fasting on mind, body and spirit, but we cannot ignore the detrimental effects of suffering that comes from starvation and other hardships in life. Oxfam says that South Africa is considered a food-secure nation, producing enough calories to adequately feed every one of its 53 million people. However, the reality is that one in four people currently suffers hunger on a regular basis and more than half of the population live in such precarious circumstances that they are at risk of going hungry. With unemployment levels at 25% nationally and over 15 million people receiving social grants, people do not have enough money to buy food. It is understandable how hungry, unemployed youth in South Africa turn to crime to hustle for survival. To date, the range of government policies created to address food security and provide drinking water to communities in drought-stricken areas have been poorly implemented, uncoordinated and unaccountable to people who suffer. In 1943, 10 years before I was born, Abraham Maslow stated that people are motivated to achieve certain needs and that some needs take precedence over others. Long before one can claim self-actualization by fully realizing one's personal potential as a human being and obtaining self-fulfillment through personal growth and by means of peak experiences, one must first satisfy a variety of other needs. Amongst the most primitive of our needs is our biological need for air, food, drink, shelter, warmth, sex and sleep. Only after these needs are met can we seek to satisfy our need for safety. This entails protection from the elements, security, law and order, stability and freedom from fear. It is like climbing up a few stairs. 
Only after we meet our needs for safety can we move upwards to meet our need for love and belongingness. This includes friendship, intimacy, love and affection. In the workplace, from family, friends and romantic relationships. Stepping up from there, we go on to seek fulfillment of our need for esteem. These are found through achievement, mastery, independence, status, dominance, prestige, self-respect and getting respect from others. By standing on the top step, we reach self-actualization. So how can we possibly expect a person struggling to meet his or her most primitive needs on the bottom steps to have any elevated sense of stability, respect for law and order, or even self-realization when this person is without food and water? For some, it may take an entire lifetime to move from one step to the next. For many, they remain on the same step throughout their entire lives. Maslow's hierarchy of needs applies equally to groups as it does to individuals. It could be said that the LGBTI community might be stuck on the step marked esteem, especially when it comes to independence, status and getting respect from others. Here in South Africa, the group of impoverished individuals is stuck somewhere on the bottom two steps of needing to satisfy their biological needs as well as their need for safety. There are a few things I have yearned to do and one of them is to dress in some ragged clothes and stand begging at a major intersection to get a feel of what it must be like. I intuitively believe that most people driving through that intersection would tend to look the other way. Even if I try to engage with them in conversation, I feel that I would soon simply become invisible. Why? Because people really don't know what to do when confronted with the plight of another. It is far too dangerous to open your heart because compassion becomes a bottomless pit. If you allow your heart to rule, you'd be bringing the person to live with you at home. With so much suffering around, we are either going to suffer from compassion fatigue or become thick-skinned like Marie Antoinette, the wife of Louis XVI, Queen of France and Archduchess of Austria, who when learning of the bread shortages that were occurring in Paris at the time, is traditionally believed to have joked, let the meat cake. But the struggle to meet even our most basic of needs is not confined to those with poor education or limited skill. There is also a lot of suffering for those who try to find their place in a world that is geared differently. The economy is driven by supply and demand. It is an economic model that determines commodity prices in a market. When there is a glut of anything, prices drop. The converse is true when a product or commodity is in short supply. Prices increase. Many years ago, an entrepreneurial fellow from Zimbabwe began to sell animal sculptures made of galvanized wire and glass beads. His art fetched significant prices until a number of copycat traders popped up at traffic intersections across the city of Johannesburg. Suddenly there was a glut of this type of art and the prices plummeted. 
Another force acting alongside supply and demand is one of productivity. It is an average measure of the efficiency of production. It is, in other words, the ratio of output per unit of input. To maximize profit, one needs to increase production efficiency. However, key in all of this is the consumer who, out of real or imagined need, creates the vacuum of demand which others satisfy through the supply of their services and goods. But herein lies an awful conundrum. What happens to you if your production is not needed, if there isn't a consumer who needs your services or goods? Capitalism is the social system which now exists in all countries of the world. Under this system, the means for producing and distributing goods are owned by a small minority of people known as the capitalist class. The majority of people must sell their ability to work in return for a wage or salary. They are referred to as the working class. The capitalists live off the profits they obtain from exploiting the working class while reinvesting some of their profits for further accumulation of wealth. This class division is the essential feature of capitalism. In capitalism, the motive for producing goods and services is to sell them for profit, not to satisfy people's needs. It is suggested that the class division and the profit motive of capitalism is at the root of most of the world's problems today, from starvation to war to alienation and crime. The working class lives fill with suffering. Peter O'Toole in the movie The Man of La Mancha speaks so eloquently about suffering in this soliloquy. Why are you poets so fascinated with madmen? We have much in common. You both turn your backs on life. We both select from life. A man has to come to terms with life as it is. Life as it is. I've lived for over 40 years and I've seen life as it is. Pain. Misery, cruelty beyond belief. I've heard all the voices of God's noblest creature. Moans from bundles of filth in the streets. I've been a soldier and a slave. I've seen my comrades fall in battle or die more slowly under the lash in Africa. I've held them at the last moment. These were men who saw life as it is. That they die despairing. No glory, no brave last words, only their eyes filled with confusion, questioning why. I do not think they were asking why they were dying, but why they had ever lived. And life itself seems lunatic. Who knows where madness lies? Perhaps to be too practical is madness. To surrender dreams, this may be madness. To seek treasure where there is only trash. Too much sanity may be madness. 
and maddest of all, to see life as it is and not as it should be. Through my therapy work, I know of many people who rarely struggle to survive. These are not lazy individuals, nor are they unskilled. They just can't seem to make ends meet because what they have to offer is not necessarily what others want to buy. Most of them have incredibly creative talents, but what they produce is not what is needed. This leaves them destitute and demotivated. They are like the lone bull elephant eating dry twigs, trying to find enough nourishment to survive. These men and women are stripped of meaning and purpose in life. When questioned about God and suffering, Stephen Fry put it this way. You walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think, I, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? I have had my fair share of suffering, having spent time in prison as a conscientious objector during the apartheid regime. Two years of solitary confinement, including weeks of isolation in dark cells, naked, deprived of all human contact, light and sound. Viktor Frankl wrote about his experiences as an inmate in the German concentration camps. His experiences led him to discover the importance of finding meaning in all forms of existence, even the most brutal ones. But each of these experiences gave him reason to continue living. Frankl became one of the key figures in existential therapy and a prominent source of inspiration for humanistic psychologists. Here is Jerry, a patient of Dr. Frankel, speaking about a life-changing event he had to conquer. In one particular line that, that Dr. Frankel quotes fairly often, I broke my neck, it didn't break me. I had a physical constraint that I had to deal with over which I could not change. I had no ability to suddenly walk again. However, I did have the ability to choose to live and at least attempt a meaningful life in spite of that physical disability. Jerry had written a voiceover narrative that changed the storyline of suffering into one of dignity, as suggested in a poem written by Bob Randolph and read by a fellow by the name of Michael, who was once himself a homeless person. Hi, my name is Michael, and I come specifically uh, here to focus my uh, volunteer work with the homeless and I come as a recovering alcoholic who used to live on the street and how do you uh, interact with people on the street who are they who is a street person is it just some bum or is it you and I when I was on the street for my birthday uh, a wonderful poet called Bob Randolph um, came and read a poem to me and I'd like very briefly to read it to you it's called what can we learn from the homeless Imagine suddenly you were homeless. How would you manage? How would you get through the day when now you have 18 cents and it's 6 a.m.? 
Can you smile at anyone? Can you say a cheery word to anyone? Can you eat a balanced diet? Can you write a love letter? Can you call home? What would you do if your one blanket is stolen? Can you go to the toilet? How do you shave or change your socks or handle diarrhea or bandage your finger? Or say hello to someone lovely you'd like to know? Would you be alive tomorrow? How do you have dignity? How do you have beauty? These last I know, you have dignity and beauty. The dignity of survival, the beauty of sharing a bottle of wine is shared with those whose pennies helped pay for it to still their hurt, to still yours. Your child years, your beautiful years, your survival years, all these tell of dignity. They tell of your spirit, though soiled now. Below the layer, your beauty remains in the tree rings of your life. The rich years, the survival years, it is the tree of your life. That's from Bob Randolph. But I think the last word about the transformation of suffering into purpose and meaning in a South African context belongs to one man, Nelson Mandela. I would like to be remembered, uh, not uh, as anybody unique or special, but as part of a great team in this country that has struggled uh, for many years, for decades, and even centuries, to bring about at this day. You have been listening to Soul Searching here on Gay SA Radio. I welcome your comments and suggestions. You may reach me by email on studio at gaysaradio.co.za and also via the station's social media platforms using the tag GaySARadio. This program is broadcast weekly on Sundays at 5pm and is available as a podcast after the show on the website www.gaysaradio.co.za. I'm Tom Budge. Until next time, goodbye.